Welcome to On Balance. I'm your host, Dr. Rod Berger. I'll be your guide as we explore the stories of today with the personalities impacting tomorrow. Welcome to On Balance. Okay, so those of you who have listened to my podcast know that sometimes I, I stray into my opinion, and so that may that may happen today. Uh, I am personally uh, very much interested in this conversation. I don't, I'm not going to use the word excited because these are these are important topics um, of conversation that we're going to be speaking with Dr. Julia Rafel Bear. She is the managing director of the ILO Group. And normally, I would not read bios because I don't want to uh, sort of bore the listener. But I, this is important to understand Julia's background. Like I said, she's the managing partner of the ILO Group. Uh, throughout COVID nineteen, she played an instrumental role advising school districts and state education agency leaders across the U.S. and led a nationwide effort to safely reopen schools, accelerate learning, and strengthen critical supports for students. She serves as an expert advisor to the COVID Collaborative. Prior to founding ILO Group, she served as a chief operating officer at Chiefs for Change, a nationwide network of district and state education leaders. Uh, Most of you, I think, listening to this podcast know about Chiefs for Change. Um, in 2020, she was appointed by the U.S. Secretary of Education to a four-year term to the National Assessment Governing Board. Julia, you have extensive experience in education. You have a research uh, report and project called the Superintendent Research Project that came out this spring. Oftentimes, I know where I want to start a conversation, <laughs> but um, I, I kind of want to just go in a number of directions. And let's start with the with the research project. Tell me about why, um, just so that the audience has an understanding as to the questions that you were looking for answers um, and how that that might impact at the local level, because we were talking off air sort of what's going on in communities around the country. And I think it is important for people and correct me if I'm wrong, for people to understand that these aren't just issues happening in that neighborhood over there. They're happy, these issues are happening in our own neighborhoods, our own school districts, within the four walls of our classrooms, and we need to educate ourselves about it. So with that backdrop and a little bit of opinion, Julia, tell us about the project. Rob, thanks so much. So the Superintendent Research Project came about actually because of a, a set of conversations that I was having over and over again with the women that I have been supporting in their leadership development efforts, where we were starting to notice these trends around the number of women, and particularly the number of women of color, that felt like they were leaving the profession. And so often when women are leaving the profession, what I know from my role as as a confidant to so many of them is that they're leaving and they're signing agreements where they are not then able to share what has really gone on, what has really happened that led to them leaving. They're not able to share because so often they need to exit gracefully so they can get into their next job. And And I I don't want to interrupt you there, but you know what that sounds like, Julia? That sounds very corporate America, right? Right. This is signing your exit interview. You're signing an NDA. You're signing basically your opinion away. So you're saying you were hearing back channel behind closed doors that this is what these superintendents, especially of color, were having to report back or at least sign away their, their, uh, their experience. Exactly. And, and it was because of that, that so often we were seeing a masking of why it was individuals were really leaving, also even what the real turnover looked like. And so, so much of what I was seeing in articles was always quite anecdotal, or there might be a organization that put out their research that for a little while became 
the research that was used. And you particularly saw that when organizations would put out data about uh, the length of tenure of a superintendent. So Stephen Sawchuk last summer from Ed Weekly, he noted in one of his articles how it seemed odd that there was no kind of data set out there about superintendent turnover. And my team had decided to take him up on creating one. We felt like it was really important that we have one public data set. And so we created this research project in an effort to create a formal publicly available data set to track leadership turnover at the district level and at the state level, and to try to really get a handle on what was going on in our country. Prior to launching this project, there was no turnover data collected formally that we could find since 2005. So much of it was either being done in a survey way or it was done in small samples with people reporting but not sharing their data. Um, So that's what led us to originally getting the project off the ground. Our first run at the data took a look at the start of the pandemic through, originally we looked through two years later, uh, sort of the January mark, and then we updated it all the way through the end of March. So we could have a two year window what had happened in this country during the pandemic within leadership turnover for the top 500 districts in the country. And Rod, it was so alarming. At the point at which we were doing this analysis, you had Dan Dominich, who's the um, executive director of ASA, coming out describing what he believed was um, some of the most significant turnover he had ever seen. Typically, ASA has rates around like 12 to 14% as sort of where they've cited turnover. We found it to be almost 40%. 40. 40%. It, it was 186 districts out of the 500. That represents almost 10 million kids in our nation. Just think about that, Rod. A quarter of kids in our nation saw leadership turnover during the pandemic. It's enormous. And so then we decided to look in and to see what was happening between men and women. And what we found is that about seven out of 10 times, districts were choosing men, but the alarming statistic, Rod, and the one that I was um, just so uh, shocked by was the reality that when a woman left her role, 76% of the time, she was replaced by a man. That was the one data point I saw in the report that just popped out to me. Yeah. So it's not just that the, we have the problem sort of day one baseline. It's that it's getting worse as we progress in the, through the calendar. Yes. Yes. So we started to dig into it more, Rod, and, and we've done now a number of different analyses. We took a look at geographic data. You know, was there something different happening in different parts of the country? And you do notice some alarming trends. I think in particular, when you take a look at the southeast of our country, there's 152 districts in the top 500 that are there, only 34 are led by women. 34, that's 24%. And how many of those do you know offhand? Maybe you don't, but are, are women of color? I don't know that one offhand. So one of the things, Rod, in our analysis that we are being really um, careful about is around verification. We think for this to be a public resource that we need to be able to have citations for our data. And as you can imagine, When a white man gets a superintendent role, articles don't say that they have a new white male superintendent the way they will and say, you know, that they have now 
appointed a black female superintendent. Right. So District X just appointed their first black superintendent, that kind of a thing, right? Exactly. We see that all the time. Exactly. So we've been very cautious about not putting out um, our race ethnicity data at this point. We're going to have a different verification process. It's going to be much more time consuming because of that. We just think it's really important that everything is cited. So um, don't have that data. But I would say, by and large, the data seems to uphold that we have a significantly fewer percent women of color um, in our our data right now. So I'm afraid to ask Julia, and you may not have the answer to this, but, um, and I hope I'm wrong, but do, do the trends that you're seeing, like you mentioned the Southeast and 152 out of the top 500 districts, only 34 are female uh, superintendents. Does it at, at all sort of overlap with political maps? That's actually a part of our next upcoming data that we're looking at. We are taking a look at places that saw political shifts occur. And we're trying to get a handle on how that may have impacted things. But I will say sort of anecdotally, it's a mixed bag. I think what we are starting to see more of, Rod, though, is we are seeing more of a tendency for more overt levels of bias than I have ever seen before in these searches. Meaning things that are being asked of candidates that, uh, particularly of women candidates, that I've never heard asked of men. Questions about whether they're going to move with their families, questions about whether they are going to have their kids enrolled in the schools, questions about whether or not they're going to be able to have the level of commitment um, to the district. And I'm I'm seeing more and more the way that these questions are being asked of women that are not being asked of men. How it's are, also, sorry. I was going to say, where's how that's fascinating. It's, it's shocking that it's not a surprise. It's probably not a surprise to a lot of, of listeners. Um, but is that coming out anecdotally? Like how is that information sort of, how are we, how are we getting that information? Because I do think it's incredibly powerful to know those things. We, I mean, look, here's the irony. <laughs> I'm a sports fan. Okay. Well, when the NFL has their draft combine where you get to interview and spend time with these players from the co going from college to pro, you get all these reports about teams asking these players really sort of odd um, questions to see how they respond to it. So we see it in the sports world and it's a novelty and maybe they use it for gambling. But now we're hearing that just to apply to be a superintendent, they're asking if they're going to be committed, if they're going to bring their family permanently, if their kids are going to be enrolled. Um, how are we getting that information? Some of this stuff happens right out in the public, Rod. There's nothing that is systematically collecting this information in a way where the public can see it. I think these are the kinds of additions that we hope to create partnerships as people take a look at the research project and want to be a part of helping to build towards something bigger. But for example, on, on the way that women get asked these things in public, um, there's a article that I, I did for the 74 about what had gone on in Sarasota, Florida, a search where out in public, you had two female school board members talking openly about how Maria Schierdo, the candidate that I was supporting um, in that process, how she was uh, their top candidate until she let them know that she was not going to be moving with her 
husband and, and her daughter. And they start talking about how they were worried about her level of commitment and could she really be committed? Rod, besides the fact that this should never have been a conversation that was ever happening and there should have been rules around even the kinds of questions that you're asking of candidates and keeping bias out, I can tell you I've never once supported a male candidate and I've supported more than 50 candidates in in searches around the country. Never once has a man been asked those kinds of questions, let alone have I ever seen deliberation processes like this in public acting as if this was like a normal course of things to ask. And you can imagine, Rod, how much worse this is for women who are not, not partnered up or who do not have kids and the kinds of things that get said about them in those instances. And so I think really unpacking what's happening in these processes that are very out in the open, the way that bias plays a role is so critical. The other thing that's really out in the open is that there is a significant pay gap massive one between men and women for doing the exact same job. And I would say on like an anecdotal level, I see this time and again, that women are offered packages that are significantly less than the man that came before them. There's nothing different about the job, right? Like there's, they're not (laughs) stepping in with a different set of responsibilities. It's still as complex as ever. Still complex, but we analyzed it. I knew from, or not from anecdotal, from survey data, Council of Great City Schools has always reported um, in their most recent analyses, a twenty to thirty thousand dollar gap. We took a look at it at the state level because the the state um, commissioner roles um, are, are quite public in their nature on this, and we saw that there is a significant pay gap. There is a pay gap, um, particularly because of the nature of the elected role. Right now, women make up eight out of the 11 elected state superintendent roles, so 73% of them. But on average, those women are making 26% less than their elected male superintendent. So the exact same role, 26% less. Well, it's a good thing we're not experiencing uh, inflation like we've not seen in 40 years. So that that difference is not tangible to their lives. Uh, And we see this, look, we've seen it in sports. We saw... uh, you know, women's soccer finally win, uh, you know, in their fight yeah. for equal pay. Um, I want to pause real quick and let people know that this has been a, a focus, you know, talking with Dr. Julia uh, Rafel Bear, uh, just strong women in education. Our first episode was with Dr. Whitaker uh, out of Georgia. What a powerhouse. Listen to that podcast. And if you can't get the sense of being in that kitchen with her grandmother and the lessons that she learned, then maybe we did something wrong. It's just one of my personal favorites. And I also want to thank uh, Just Right Reader. You can go to justrightreader.com. They help bring these, converse, these conversations uh, to light. Just Right Reader for districts, schools, and educators. They've sent over 50,000 take-home decodable boxes, uh, and they've been delivered to students and families across the U.S. Go see our friends at justrightreader.com to see diverse characters, rigorous phonics, progression, and lesson in Spanish, lessons in Spanish and English, and so much more. Uh, thank you so much, Just Right Reader, and check out Dr. Whitaker. Okay, so Julia, I don't want to, I want to make sure that we are not sort of leaning too far in one direction that then would give, um, you know, these people that I don't exactly align with uh, fodder. So what are the blind spots? You know, some might, you know, what can we do as an industry? Because like you, I've been curious over the years, right? So I have spent time at AASA's conferences and interviewed countless superintendents and those that are a part of the, is it um, the urban superintendency? Uh, I can't remember the, 
Institute or whatever it is. So Mm -hmm. someone will correct me out there on that. But, and I'll hear offline that, you know, there are these stories, especially with candidates of color that, you know, when we talk about the search process, because I want to talk about the search process, that oftentimes it goes nowhere for them. And in the event that it does, I heard personally, so first person accounts of candidates where if they got a superintendency position, it was in a district that was either this close, narrowly close to being, a, you know, um, uh, what do you want to call it? Controlled by the state or under state control, right? Where they have- Glass cliff. Mm-hmm. Yes, the glass cliff. Thank mm-hmm. you for clearing that up for me. You can tell I'm very, this just, this topic- uh, is near and dear to me because I, I can't, it's very hard to hear these stories and basically they're being put in positions to fail. Right. So that then the people that put them in those positions can say, this is exactly why we have a disproportionate number of people in superintendency positions, because this is their data says you can't cut it. And it's a really, really, um, it's just a terrible narrative. And so help me understand the search process and how in your work over the last 20 years, when you think about that, I mean, beyond the questions, what is it that, are, do we have blind spots or the things that we could be doing better? And maybe it's this, maybe it's the ILO group and others that are informing on data that just has not been packaged together and looked at or examined. I think there's a few parts to the answer on this. I think number one, I think we do need to be much more transparent about what is happening. And our contribution with the superintendent research project is to help to create one step forward in that way. Being able to have a data set that others can use, being able to look at it within your own states. I think the you know federal um, department could add this to states equity plans. Right now, every state is required to submit an equity plan to the United States Education Department. We could be adding to that data collection information about superintendents, about school boards, about um, the uh, candidate pools for these. I think the question about sort of what should maintain at state level data collection versus what should be reported as part of a state equity plan are the kinds of conversations that I think states could be having and communities could be having. Right now, there, there are no requirements in any way about about hiring processes. Districts could set very clear and written goals about the way that they're going to go about their hiring processes, about the need to have candidate pools that have multiple candidates of color in them, multiple women in them. There's been research um, from Harvard Business Review around the importance of having multiple women and multiple leaders of color in a candidate pool and how important that is in a selection process. But that's not something that's a typical way that we go about processes. I think think there's a lot of work up front about unpacking the way that bias plays a role in this and then preventing bias from occurring. Questions about individuals' families and about um, their partners and about how that might impact their work should just be off the table. Should not even be. And questioned. look, to, and to be a cynic, and I'll say it, you don't have to say it, but it really feels like we are um, we're bleeding over into the church, you know, church and state conversation, right? I am, you know, in that role. If I am asking that of you as a candidate, I am placing judgment and expectation around a belief set that I have. Um, and if you don't 
fit into that box, well, then you're not a good candidate. I'm, that to me is very, very dangerous in the education space. Let's talk about the pool of talent, because I think it's it feels like this is sort of chapter one. Um, it's been a tough chapter for you and your your colleagues to work on, but now it's sort of now you're getting information. How can that impact you know sort of current day candidates and um, and search processes? But also, what about the pool of talent that's coming out of colleges of education? How are we structuring it? If if this has been going on forever or for <laughs> longer than we'd like to to acknowledge then that has to, I would imagine, have an impact in the way in which we talk about leadership opportunities in education for that college student that is thinking about a career in education where maybe the classroom isn't what they really desire. They want to be in district administration, right? And so how can we impact positively colleges of education to support a narrative that is much more accurate, that also understands how to attract talent? Because if I'm a minority in education, I might just not even think about it because I don't see representation. And if I don't see representation of sort of who I am in my community, I might not even think it's a possibility or an opportunity to go on that path. Yeah, right. I mean, I think your points are exactly right. One of the things that was really just a punch in the gut for me is that as a former teacher, I really did believe that the sky was the limit for my students. And I certainly looked around at the leadership rungs within the New York City Department of Education with the state commissioner role in New York. And there were no women at the top of, of the system. And I think when you are starting off in your career and you don't see at the top women, it starts to begin that cycle about who gets into those rungs. And when we have a, a field that's dominated by women. I refer to it as the wallpaper problem, right? We all know that we have a, a sector dominated by women. What our research continues to show that every single rung, we end up losing more women until we get to the top. What our newer research though is showing is a lot more information about the pathway to the top. What meaning, we know that there is a skewed pipeline that is beginning earlier on in careers and particularly for women where women are ending up heading from the teacher role into an elementary school principal role, and then often into the academic pathway. From there, they may then transition into another internal role. Maybe they're going to be a associate um, superintendent, and then they move into the deputy. Whereas for men, more male teachers go from being in the teacher rank to being in the high school principal role which is a role that has much more community and board exposure. And then they move straight into central office roles, typically moving straight into that kind of associate superintendent than the deputy, meaning they're taking less time to make those upward moves than women. And what's really crazy about all of this, Corn Ferry actually did a study where they looked at this across CEO roles. And Corn Ferry saw this across CEO roles. They found over and over again in their data set that women don't see themselves as ready. They take longer for upward moves and women underestimate the readiness for promotions. And so you end up not only having this kind of gender-based confidence gap, but this skewed pipeline that is starting from classroom for women. And so I think that so much of this is about both creating the data, making sure that people know it's out there, helping people understand what the data are showing about these pathways, 
educating our workforce earlier about these components and recognizing, and I hear this all the time in my work, women always think that they need more time to show impact. I'm constantly being told by incredible women that they just need a little bit longer in the role that they're in because they want to show that they've really knocked it out of the park. And so I think being able to make sure that we are talking about this earlier, recognizing the upward trends. And then what our data is showing is that the role that most significantly ends up moving into the superintendent role is that deputy role. And so the faster path where we educate people about the reality that women are taking longer in these leadership roles and functions is something that we have to just make more visible and talk about more. Yeah, these guys that you're referencing, it's like they're in the HOV lane on the freeway. Mm -hmm. Like mm-hmm. we're, all bo- we're all going to the grocery store, but somehow I'm arriving much sooner than Julia is. Yeah. And then over time, you're thinking it's going to, you're going to plan accordingly to maybe get on the road sooner because it's going to take you that much longer to get to the grocery store. I mean, this is, we're talking about some pretty basic human behavior and experiences and reactions to stimuli in an environment. This is not about blaming what women and and minorities are not doing to me. This is not that at all. This is about equitable access and providing the opportunity and the, the oxygen, maybe more importantly, to experience these environments where they can thrive. But we're not doing that. And here's my concern, and maybe you can put a bow on this, but you know we're, we're coming up on a number of school board elections, uh, local elections around the country uh, as we as we kind of turn into late summer. And the decisions that we're making as an electorate will impact these very choices and these searches that are underfoot. And this is where I, I would love for community members to educate themselves on these topics, not just those that work in education, um, but those that are moms and dads and community members and business owners, because you know the superintendent position is much more important than I think people understand within a given community. Absolutely. They set the vision for the entire district. They set that vision. They implement that vision. They're working side by side with their boards to make sure that there's accountability towards that vision. And it is the place where we know that school boards have some of the most significant power. The hiring and firing of that superintendent, the compensation packages, how they think about recruiting great candidates, how to be supportive of families, of well-being, of recognizing that these jobs are more critical than ever as we are recovering from the aftermath of this pandemic with the amount of unfinished learning, the challenges around mental health. These jobs are so much more about building relationship and collaboration and partnership across agencies and um, across health than than ever before. And if you want to have a superintendent that is going to be able to help to really support your community, it means also recognizing and being an advocate for their own support, for their own well-being. I think it's one of the more untalked about components uh, around the superintendency is really also just the lack of transparency about contracts. One of the things that we have been beginning to collect um, our superintendent contracts. They're they're public documents. You can, by and large, get them through a lot of digging and 
um, board meetings. But we are starting to see some real progress, Rod, in terms of items that people are getting into their contracts and that school boards are really supporting. So for example, like off limit time, time where the superintendent cannot be reached, they are able to use that for their own personal world and things that they need to take care of. We're seeing things like sabbaticals being built into contracts, recognizing the importance of that time and how that can impact tenure. So I do see some promising signs, but I would say it's sort of the next frontier of things that need to be made more public so that people can learn from them. Do you mind sharing with the audience, because it's it's audio only in a podcast, but you've got some bookshelf art behind you with a, a statement there. I'm going to say it's a statement that I love. Maybe it's because I'm, I'm a dad of a powerful young uh, girl who's going <laughs> to gonna work with Julia someday. Can you read that for us? <laughs> it says, she believed she could, so she did. I love that. I love that. We have to do a better job. Um, we've got to, we've got to tell the stories of incredibly strong and talented women so that the next generation, not just to support the current, but that the next generation understands the reality and the opportunity they have to make an impact and not be impacted upon in that regard. So we want to thank Dr. Julia uh, Rayfolt Bayer. I got that right. Managing director of the ILO group. You can go to ILO group.com. Check out their superintendent research project. This will not be the last time that we chat, Julia. I'm going to, I'm going to make that commitment. You might ignore my emails, but I'm going to keep reaching out because these stories need to be told. Also want to encourage people to check out the On Balance podcast and the first episode of my focus on strong female leaders in education across the U.S. with Dr. Whitaker. Huge fan of hers. And, and I think you will be too, if you check it out. I also want to thank Just Right Reader for helping make these kinds of conversations, um, available, uh, the opportunity to take place. Uh, they are for district schools and educators. They've sent over 50,000 take home decodable boxes across the country, delivering to students and families. Check out our friends at justrightreader.com to see diverse characters, rigorous phonics, progression, and lessons in Spanish and in English, and so much more. I'm your host, Dr. Rod Berger. This concludes another chapter of On Balance. Connect with me via LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. I'm Dr. Rod Berger.